So, hello everyone. We are the MI Guys along with Tammy Calais today, uh, and we are here to enhance your evidence-based communication skills to help individuals you help, as well as the organizations and communities, uh, to just help with their outcomes and help the people that you serve. And so to help with that, uh, we are going to have a conversation today that will be hopefully informative around why even think about doing motivational interviewing or embracing it or thinking about it? And maybe we can go a little deeper than we might usually. We'll see here. But uh, this is the topic for the day. And so I'm curious, uh, Tammy or Casey, we can just kind of dive in. Why am I? Why would you think am I? And why would you even choose it versus all the other communication methods out there? So who would like to start? Well, I have no problem talking. Ladies so. first. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, I love the process because it feels really good from everything I've witnessed when I'm around people that have strong communication skills. Um, but it feels really good to the people that you're talking with. Yeah. And so that's one of the, my favorite things why I really love the process is because they, they feel really good about it. I feel really good and skilled in helping them get where they want to go. In, in alignment with their values and feeling heard and understood, but also it's just a fun process to help help me slow down in this busy, chaotic world and instead of thinking of myself, to think about them and what's going on in their world and why they're thinking those things and and what kind of place that they're in. And it just, it's really, I think it's very healthy. Mm-hmm. You know, what? Mm-hmm. when we're talking about this whole thing about why am I, I think, then why not? I mean, why yeah. why would you do that on one hand as opposed to when you think of how you had conversations prior to? Because you were good at your job prior to learning motivational interviewing. Yes. So when you compare the two, I mean, why not other ways of communicating or the ways you originally, you know, kind of had conversations in your in your formal life as working in sales? Yeah. Well, in, in general, I would say it elevated my skills tremendously once I learned motivational interviewing because again I don't know why but maybe it's not everyone maybe it's just me but people have a hard time not talking they have a hard time genuinely listening That's to true. what you're saying and so I was the same boat and here I was in sales and so I'm trying to talk about all these great things but it helped me to slow down and listen to other people but also listen with intention about what's mm. really most important to them that makes sense and so, and then reflect that back to them instead of asking questions, you know, again, because questions kind of subconsciously relate that you don't understand something. So that's why you're asking. And so that's why I really like the process because once you start reflecting things back to them, they start to feel even more like you get them and you understand them. I th- I th- I'll tell you the thing I'm most curious about, honestly, Tammy, is you have a degree in communications. Mm-hmm. And this was monumentally different for you. So, I mean, you studied communications. Mm-hmm. And this was like a whole new world. Because they don't teach communications like this. Okay. So, tell me more about that. Because I truly am curious Period. about... I just learned today that you have your degree in communications. So I've been thinking about that. It's like, when we're talking, why am I? Like, yeah. Since I probably should have read your resume. Yeah, I just had to say, even though know she works right yeah. So, now that I've learned that you have this degree in communications, um, I am curious because you would just think they would cover all these things that we cover in motivational learning in a communications degree. Um, but I remember when I first met you, and you were just so wide-eyed and intrigued and 
fascinated with all the, the aspects of motivational learning. And you were fascinated, and you'd only barely touched the tip of the iceberg. At that point. When I'd met you. Yes, yeah. originally. So, yeah. So, again, I think that's my curiosity with you is just, you know, why did you latch onto this? And why does it continue to be something that sparks um, so much intrigue for you and an investment of your professional time and a personal time in it, too? Well, it's so fascinating because, again, in, in university and college, now, they might have taught this, and maybe I just went in one way or out the other, <laughs> but um, it's just, it's fascinating how I don't remember ever talking about the physics of communication yeah. and mm-hmm. how literally what you say creates a reaction in another person, whether positive or negative. And that always just clicks with me so much yeah. in every conversation going, okay, what am, what are they needing in this moment? What do I need in this moment? Do I... Do I want to use some of these skills or do I just want to talk? I don't know. But either way, it's once you start to recognize that your words have that much power, sometimes it's fascinating. Because again, I really love it too in the process of reducing resistance with people. It's fascinating to talk to someone that's feeling so angry and so agitated and in a few seconds that anger and agitation has now decreased and now we're able to have a real conversation. And so in school, they don't really teach that type of right. communication in right. general. Um, yeah, they just don't teach it like that. Mm-hmm. Well, and what you just said is exactly the point of this this cast is why am I? Mm-hmm. What you just talked about is, is eliminating discord, re- reducing tension, <laughs> reducing resistance. Literally, that is one of the reasons of why you'd want to use motivational interviewing. Mm-hmm. So if you're ever in situations what I always think of as personally and professionally, even though it really gets heavily leaned on from a professional perspective, but any moment there is tension or anger or significant discord, um, just if there's a beef between two people, Mm -hmm. we know the data shows the efficacy of when people feel heard and understood, they start to de-escalate. I mean, it's just, we know this. Just Mm -hmm. as much as I drop a pen, it's gonna hit the floor. Yeah. Um, So those are the things that I get excited about, and I think, this is exactly what we're looking at with why would you use motivational interviewing. Mm-hmm. And, and it's in those moments, again, you don't have, uh, there's so many different skills that you learn in motivational interviewing. It's not that I'm using all of them in all points, no. but it's the fact that in any moment, if I notice any resistance, I can immediately step into this type of communication method to decrease that. That makes me feel really good. Mm-hmm. Helps them feel heard and understood and feel really good. And it makes me feel really good that I can help them through that process. Mm-hmm. So what about you guys? Well, uh, well, I'll go here because I have a really deeper question okay. here for Casey on, on, on his history as well. But I think to balance that out, I come at it from the, instead of high empathy side, I've come at it very much from the higher direction side. Mm-hmm. As uh, you know, you talk about, uh, as Casey would talk about, the balance, the royal marriage of empathy and direction. How do you fit that? And we might be a little higher in one or the other. But I came to it really from this high direction mindset of what is efficient and effective at helping people. Period. And if we're going to call ourselves in healthcare best practice practitioners, right. mm-hmm. I should be efficient and effective and use best practices. I don't care what it is per se. And so that's where then there is this balance of that way of being with someone with an intentional focus on happier and healthier and mm-hmm. not getting too attached to one way of that happening and a target behavior. And we can get deeper into that and we do get deeper into that on other podcasts. Uh, but that's just to say there is this kind of balance of the two. And to me, that's what got me into it and why I also feel very ethical about it is that there's this balance of I'm 
honoring someone while also guiding and empowering all at the same time. Right. Mm-hmm. And I can sleep very ethically that if they don't choose to, I really have done as much as I possibly have done that I have control over, which might, I might need to bring my skill set to the next level, but I at least have control over that. And I can sleep sound at night, even if they don't make that decision because it's their life and it's their choice. And I mean, go back to the same thing I said with Tammy. It's why am I? That's a great reason for why you use am I. Mm-hmm. You, you sleep more soundly from an ethical perspective of knowing you left everything out on the field. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, it was Dr. Teresa Moyers who said the whole royal marriage thing, so I don't oh, get credit okay. for that. Um, but it's also the one that I, when I would watch her videos in the very beginning when I was, my skills were not even there. And I just kept thinking, she leaves everything on the field. She leaves everything in the conversation where it should be. So the informed choice is really with the client or the patient. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's all the things you talked about, John, where there's, there's such an ethical component to that. There's an informed choice. There's an efficiency and an effectiveness to it that that is why you would use motivational interviewing. I mean, it's just not for the sleeping better. It's just you don't take as much stuff home because it's not yours to take home. Mm-hmm. It's not your issue. What is your issue, which is why we use MI, what is your issue is developing the skill set you were talking about. Mm-hmm. You, you can get to a level of person-centered, which there's so much written about person-centered approaches mm-hmm. and the efficacy mm-hmm. of that and bedside manner and empathetic listening and how impactful that is for engagement, but that doesn't make it motivational interviewing. Yes, yes. So there's a lot of value in a person-centered approach, but you're also looking at an evidence-based practice mm-hmm. that really does advance outcomes for the people that you work with and how ethically can you not develop that skill set or be invested in improving that uh, in your own professional development. Absolutely. And, and that taps into a whole other thing that uh, we can dive deeper on if of interest around ethical influence, but yeah. ultimately it's getting into that NMI, by definition, their agenda is reign supreme compared to your agenda. That is compassion in MI. So how are you channeling your compassion? You could be channeling it in a very empathic way that's very honoring and is very important as a foundation, Mm -hmm. but then you don't get anywhere, so you're not advancing their outcome with their agenda. But you might be so focused on advancing it that you actually create resistance in the process and you're actually putting your agenda above theirs. So it's this wonderful way of how you channel your compassion into an efficient, effective, helpful, empowering way that includes both of these things going on. Mm -hmm. Something that I was particularly of interested in in talking about this, especially, and and we can relate that to sales and get into this this deeper conversation of why am I in such a variety of, of areas, right? Yeah. But but in particular for since you were checking in, since I checked in, I yeah. want to shift to Casey. Yeah. Uh, and go, when you think about your history, because you have a long history from high school and you can see those videos if you want. It's the stories of how Casey got involved with social work and helping people. You have a long history of helping people before you came into MI. Yes. And this is really where I'm wondering then, you know, kind of the story of that, the (laughs) succinct story of that, and how you kind of like, oh, yeah, kind of, but then how it kind of grew on you in a way that became real and genuine, uh, that kind of story. Well, I can tell you, like, like I did talk about in my bio, part of it is I always wanted to be able to help people. It just, and when I found out I could get paid for it, I... I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe why people would do anything else but that. And and I was a relatively solid individual, relatively, mentally, emotionally, <laughs> relatively solid. Um, a lot of good friends, you know, people come to me for advice, you know, those kind of things where a lot of people are that way. And 
and I think because I had such a genuine heart of compassion, I know I got it partly from my mom. Just, you know, we'd give our shirt off our back to anyone, help them out. Like, that's just the way I was raised. That's, and of, of all my siblings, I definitely, I definitely really took that to heart. Like, I just want to be of service. Like, I want to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. So that's when I launched into the field. That's where I was coming from. And I started off working with uh, children and, and adolescents. And I was a, an adolescent myself. You know, like I said, I was about 19, 20 years old when I started. And what I had access to that made sense is I knew I came from a pretty stable family situation. Like in the range of family situations, I had a pretty stable family situation. Um, And so what I thought always was I'm going to build a really good relationship and know that somebody knows that they're always there for them. So I really took a relationship approach. And as when I was going through school, both my undergraduate and my graduate degree, I really gravitated towards uh, reality therapy, which is you just meet people where they're at, and then gradually you start to shift them to a healthier reality. So you started that. So, so just my natural gravitation was towards a person-centered approach. A person-centered approach, but was also a relationship. And once they... I developed a really strong relationship and we bonded and it's where also where that gray area comes in, mm-hmm. in when you're doing a therapeutic alliance and all the things that we can, that are true, that we can either justify or naturally occur. Um, then, then you can start to, then I would start to strong arm a little bit more mm-hmm. like, you know, you're smarter than this, John, what are you thinking about? You know, better than this, you know, if you want to get healthy, this is what you got to work on. Come on, buddy. You know, so it was really that relationship and almost like a big brother or a parent, mm-hmm like a compassionate, caring parent um, that didn't have to deal with them during the day. So I got to be kind of like this awesome big brother, you know, that was just, they loved hanging out with and I could bond with and connect with. And, you know, and they want me in their lives forever and I would want to be in their lives forever. But that's not therapeutic. Mm-hmm. And and at the time, it made total sense. So I had great relationships, and I had really good outcomes. When I worked in the addiction field, when I worked in child welfare, because so many of those kids that I worked with and, and teens that I worked with needed to know that somebody believed in them. So when I look back at my career at the early parts of it, I know what I did was value-added. Yeah. When I was introduced to motivational interviewing, I was in the thick of um, working in the addiction world, and it was nearly 180-degree opposite of what I was raised in in the, in the late 80s in the addiction world, which was very confrontive, very um, stigmatizing. You are the problem. It's your addiction that's the problem. And until you figure that out and until you surrender or, or until we verbally abuse you enough, you're not going to change. It's um, painful just hearing that. It was painful. When I look in retrospect, yeah. in, but it was such the culture of addiction treatment at the time. There yeah. was a I remember there was an uh, inpatient facility that as soon as you checked into inpatient, they literally put a toilet seat around your head Mm. because the toilet ring, because you're a piece of crap. And, uh, yeah, this is, yeah, yeah. because it's, and, and so you would never separate the person from the addiction back then. So when, I, so when I was exposed to motivational interviewing, yeah, it was abusive. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's... Um, and, and it's all about the person and willpower, and then it was not willpower, it's brain disease. I mean, just all that. I got to see so many iterations just in the, the time that I was in the addiction world. And so you can imagine if that's what you're doing for your job eight hours a day, and then I get exposed to motivational interviewing... <laughs> well, the first thing you think is they don't know our world. Yeah, they I was going to say it was. It was not a. It wasn't uh, quite that oh. of a transition. It wasn't a breath of fresh air. It, my first yeah. time that I saw a video of somebody using motivational learning, I thought 
when are you going to confront them? Like you can't, how long you are feeding into, you're validating things that are completely unhealthy. You're feeding into their defense mechanisms. You need to grab them by the horns and pull them to the ground. Like that's just what I was trained to do. And so when I was first exposed to motivational interviewing because of where I was at in my career trajectory at the time, and I was, I think I was um, working in the prison system at that point with adults. Uh, I think there was a transition when I first got exposed and when I got exposed to it again between working with adolescents and drug treatment and then moving into mental health and addiction in the prison system in, in both state and federal prison, it just was so culturally wildly different than what I was being trained in or exposed to. But then you've got organizations that are trying to bring evidence-based practices in, you know, um, in the 90s now, and it was much more evidence-based focused, but and it was born out of the addiction field, MI was. Mm-hmm. So from that part of it, I get exposed to it, and my first couple times I was exposed to it, I just thought this is a fly-by-night thing because this is not going to fly in real addiction world. Mm-hmm. It just it might have some nice <clears throat> packaging and it might be shiny and new, but this is going to fade because we're going to have to get back to really dealing with these issues that this process of motivational interviewing is not yeah. going to address. Mm-hmm. And then it was some of the videos that I saw for the second or third time, and when I looked at it, I thought... But isn't that who I want to be? Yeah. <laughs> it, seems, mm-hmm. it really, and it was just, I think so. So you just have to kind of put on your boxing gloves in the morning when, when I worked in the addiction field. You just kind of, you'd get armored up, right? Just like when I, like now, work with law enforcement, you literally get your uniform on, you get your, your tool belt on, your weapons belt, and, and you're going to work. And that's oh. how, for me, it felt like going to work in the addiction world. Um, and to the extent, mental health. And so when I saw this, I thought, it was like this long calling about why did I get in the field in the first place? And then I kept looking at, well, this is a really nice, clean clinical setting, yeah. you know, but at least I can see the efficacy of it. Yeah. So then as I started to study it more and look at it and my brain started connecting, it's honestly how I got into starting to train it. Cause I was starting to look at it from kind of a different lens. I was looking through, a, through the pure MI lens that I was getting trained in. And then I was just trying to connect the dots for all the issues I was dealing with, with the populations that I worked with. And so more people were saying, wait a second, we saw MI, but the way you're talking about it is different. And like I said, same thing when I talked about in my bio, um, when I started working at Washington State University for the Washington Institute for Mental Health Research and Training, I was around so many researchers. And this is where it's actually about the time that I met you. Um, I was pretty solid at WSU then. But that's where, for me, I started to really start to look at um, the efficacy and the efficiency from an evidence-based and a fidelity perspective. I still remember um, Mike Hendricks was one of the research psychologists, and he was specifically studying two things that really intrigued me was weighting, W-E-I-G-H-T, weighting different measures, like which ones have more weight. Like when you when you provide somebody a test or a question, like they don't all weigh the same. Mm-hmm. Like some are very significant, some are less significant. So mm-hmm. he was doing a lot of research around that. And another thing was around um, technology transfer. Mm-hmm. And I was, at that point, I think I'd just gotten promoted to the director of training and technical assistance at, at the Institute. And when he got into the technology transfer and I started learning more about that, I thought, it, it was the same thing when I got exposed to MI. Like, where has this been? Mm-hmm. Like. We have spent billions of dollars on training. I had been through so much training after, you know, post-education. I was going through so much training on all sorts of different models and methods. And some of my loved and some of my thought were BS, but I just got massive amounts of training. 
And then I thought, well, how many do I actually use? Well, no, I'm still Casey doing the same thing about building relationships and doing what I've always done. And I'm pretty good at it and people like it. And mm-hmm. I, they keep wanting to seek me out to get counseling services. So why would I do it differently? But that technology transfer struck me because there was so much data around how people go to trainings and they, there's no technology transfer where it transfers into a skill set into the real world. Blew my mind. But it was so common sense, which is what I loved about MI. So, I mean, there's these whole things, I think, for me and my development about why MI mm-hmm. is there's effectiveness, there's an efficiency. And it's also why, and this is somewhat controversial, I, I think, is that as we started shifting away from training the acronyms in motivational learning, which are, they're fundamental, they're critical, the mm-hmm. constructs are absolutely important. Mm-hmm. But for me, with a fidelity perspective, is what I learned, and this was probably that first five years of training on MI, is I was great at training it. Every one of my groups could pass a post-test. They knew what the darn cat was. They knew the ORs. They knew IQ ledge. They knew every single acronym. And it took me about five years to go, oh my gosh, they don't know how to change behavior. <laughs> They get the knowledge. And not they the get the knowledge, but not the skill. Yeah. And and I just thought that's wow, wow. And it's the same thing. I knew what I was training was good, but I thought that's not why am I for me? Am mm-hmm. I for me is to help people really improve outcomes. It's not even for me. I've said this a, at least a hundred times. I'm not particularly comfortable standing in front of a group and training, mm-hmm. but I will talk about am I all day long. Mm-hmm. Um, if people want to learn it, I can stand in front of a group and train. But if I just have to talk. You know, I get the butterflies and anxious and I don't know what to talk about and I'm not smart enough to do this. But you give me something like motivational interviewing and people that genuinely want to improve an outcome for their client. And that's why MI for me, from my early career till now, it just became the way of doing it. I've, Again, I've said this more than once, not thousands of times, but more than once in trainings. If someone, and this is, whether people would believe this or not, but for me, this is to my toes the truth. Someone could walk in right now with a million-dollar check with my name on it, lay it down, and say, you can cash this check and keep it, but you have to give me everything you know about MI and you don't get to keep any of it. I wouldn't take the million dollars. It has changed my parenting. Mm -hmm. It has changed my relationships. It's changed my friendships in ways that (laughs) a million dollars is minuscule compared Mm -hmm. to the quality of life that I have because of what I've learned. Mm -hmm. And the thing that it is, is it's not just a theory or philosophy. I mean, we talk about mindfulness. We talk about different things that feed into it. It is a way of being able to communicate that changes lives, and it's changed my life. And so for me, when we get into why am I, I can think, well, it effectively improves the outcomes for somebody struggling with an addiction issue and somebody with diabetes and somebody with heart disease and somebody with obesity. Like... Oh, and in parenting. Oh, and in relationships. Like, it changes everything around you. So I just think there's lots of good reasons why Why MI for me. Why not? Yeah. Why why wouldn't you train to change those relationships? Why wouldn't you feel more connected to your friends, to your family, to your loved ones? Why would you not want your friends to get where they ultimately want to go in life? I mean, yeah, it's just, it it is so motivating and empowering to help people get where they want to go. Well, and to that point too, it's it's almost like when you learn deeper and deeper, and there's always more to learn. Different trainers, mm-hmm. you can always learn another angle. Uh, there's always more to learn with MI. Yes. Um, and I say that because though there's also just this informed choice you get in your life. You increase your awareness level in the moment, and just have an informed choice of what's the type of connection or interaction I want to have in this moment. And then you have more power to be the person you want to be in the world in a very mindful, aware, 
and honoring sort of way. And sometimes we're going to get frustrated as humans. We're going to have emotions. We're going to be having a dynamic range of emotions. So the more I am aware of how that's impacting those around me, the more I can have informed choice in who I wish to be with those around me. And that really has been very empowering in my life in a lot of ways. You know, I'll tell you the other thing that as I keep thinking about why am I, and I listen to Tammy, you talk and John, when you're talking, I'll tell you the other thing about why motivational learning for me is I, uh, if you want to trigger my imposter phenomenon, tell me I'm an expert in motivational interviewing. That's the, if you, the quickest way to get me to feel triggered and go, oh my God, I don't know anything about MI is just tell me that I'm an expert in motivational interviewing. And the reason why I'm obsessed with MI is there's so many models out there that I feel like I've mastered. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm good at motivational interviewing. And when people see me, they think I'm phenomenal at motivational interviewing. But when I look in real time, I think, yes, I've read hundreds of articles on motivational learning and data around it, and there's 500 articles I haven't read on motivational learning because it keeps growing and expanding. And what I learned and what I trained 15 years ago is not everything that I train now Mm -hmm. because we've learned so much through the research and the data. And so for me, so many models are fairly stagnant that once the model is taught and once you've mastered it, there's not a whole lot of ebb and flow. There's not a whole lot of, you know, fresh water that comes in and, and cleans the pond out. And for me, motivational learning is constantly has this kind of fresh water stream coming into the pond and keeps things clearer for me. And it gives me more things to want to explore. So that's a whole other angle about why I'm obsessed with motivational learning. It's not because I've developed some level of expertise around it and have a capacity to train it effectively. For me, what it's really about is that I have never felt like I've been stagnant when I'm learning motivation, and it makes me feel like I'm not the level of expert I want to get towards, mm-hmm. even in my own skill set with it. Mm-hmm. Like when we worked on the MICA tool, like I, I, I think that I score in kind of the four or five range pretty consistently between competent and proficient in motivational interviewing. But I can have John listen to a tape and he is going to have some points of things that I could just think about improving. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's just thinking about that when we watch some of the masters in motivational interviewing, some of these brilliant videos that are produced with the masters of motivational learning, so many of them, you, when you look at it through a fidelity lens, it's like, there's so many right ways to do it. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's phenomenal. What yeah. they accomplish is phenomenal that they capture on screen um, and in these conversations. But then you also think, oh, I wonder if they would have taken this direction, how it would have unfolded. Mm-hmm. Could, it, could it have gone two steps further or 10 steps deeper yeah. um, or to a whole different level? And that's the fascination is there's such a fundamental structure. But then there is also the allowance for when we talked about mindfulness in that mm-hmm. one podcast um there's a mindfulness about it too that it's not it's formulaic but it's not rigid Mm -hmm. you have to stick to a basic formula which just makes it fidelity based but you have so much flexibility within there to to with a living breathing three-dimensional human being who has thoughts and feelings and their mood and their emotion and their thoughts can change on a dime and you have to have the presence of mind to be able to navigate that as well. And so I think that's the other thing as this whole topic is around why am I, it's not only the efficacy and efficiency with populations we serve, but just from a professional development that I feel like truly till the day I die, if I'm interested in MI, there are so many things I'm going to be able to learn and keep growing with. And the version that we kind of have gravitated towards and how we teach now 10 years from now, it could be completely different or not completely different, but I think some of the modifications and things we jettison and things that we have learned because the data, this is where change happens, Mm -hmm. um, is fascinating. And 
when I think of the founders, like Dr. William Miller and, and uh, Stephen Rolnick, and I always add Dr. Teresa Moyers in there as well, too. There's so much attention about the spirit of motivational interviewing. Mm-hmm. So where you've got, and I think that's why John and I do relatively well together in all this stuff is because he really does have that focused fidelity mind of this is what the research says. This yes. is what the research says, and which I deeply appreciate. And I get into, but why did we get in the field? Why did we get in the field? What is the spirit of motivational learning, which John deeply appreciates? I mean, it really is that balance of both sides. And I think that is the balance in why you think of motivational learning evidence, but it comes from such a deep place of compassion and empathy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's, there's two points here, and then this will kind of like transition or parlay over to a question for you. Um, um, one point here that's really interesting to me is listening to you and having heard you on your bio and, and talk about that that I can relate to is a sense of it's, it's an in the moment creativity, really you're yeah, being very true. creative and it's a creative process. And that's if you true. see uh, Casey's video of what he would do, that's a fun fact about him. It deals with cooking and all sorts of this creative process. Love watching chopped all this good <laughs> stuff. And we love watching love it together. Chopped. And there's this creative co-authoring of something that's happening when you're doing MI yes. and it's being so present that you pay attention to that and then the outcomes come because you're paying attention to the what you have control over in the moment. And I say that because it really can be dynamic all the time, which is different than having a script, which is different than getting burnt out because you feel like you're just a robot on your job. Right. There's this wonderful process that everyone is new. Now, that can be a bit overwhelming for the brain that's just first learning am I or the mind that's first learning am I. That gets a little bit much, so you might just take few people at a time right. on your caseload. But once you get this down, it's just like good at any sort of skill or anything. You become creative with it in a yes. very different way. And then I have a second point to bring over to you, but you look like you got a point. So well, no, I just, yeah. it's so true. The more, like any skill, the more you learn and embody it, the more you start to use it in your own ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's just a cool process. Well, and you can rely on intuition at that point, which yes. can get really woo-woo for some people, and, and people might start to question, but there's really good evidence with doctors or otherwise that if you do something and you get immediate feedback, you can create a moment of relying on that intuition and creative flow. This is mm-hmm. the same of why people that are good at sports get really good at the fundamentals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then they don't even have to think. It's just this wonderful creative process and this co-creative process. So that, I think, is really fun once you can get to that skill level, just like a good painter. You let it flow and not have to think so hard so much. But you got to get over that learning curve with practice, with feedback to make that happen. Well, I'll tell you what triggers me as soon as you say that, too. What sparks for me is it's what I love about training. And it's the same thing I know you were connecting to when you brought up the thing about cooking, just the alchemy mm-hmm. that happens in a situation. Mm-hmm. So whether I think about it from if I was going to be this amazing chef, or standing in front of a group, the capacity to use, I mean, this is a little bit behind the screen of, you know, Oz, kind of a thing, but it really has to do with the fact that you get to use MI while you're teaching MI. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is what is, what are the brains thinking? Mm-hmm. And, and the alchemy is the fact there's 30 or 40 or 50 brains thinking 30 or 40 or 50 different things. Mm-hmm. And you as a trainer are trying to absorb all that and then create a chemistry where people get to walk away with the best case scenario for everyone in the room. Mm -hmm. And it's not easy to do, but that's the challenge, but it does sharpen your MI skills. And I think that's for me, another 
why I love motivational interviewing. It's not just teaching the construct of mm-hmm. it. It's not just getting people reinvigorated in their own personal life or in their professional life, but it's being able to create this chemistry, what, exactly what you guys are both talking about, being able to create this chemistry um, with a group of people, which, which I don't... I think it happens. I think it happens when you're at a professional, you know, football game together and it's mm-hmm. snowing and everybody's bundled up and you're, you know, bumping cups and everything yeah. like that. And it's just, you know, and, and uh, tailgate parties and, you know, I just think it's a chance for us to get together and connect. And I think that's one of the things that why I love motivational learning, not just teaching it, but, but being able to um, have access to it on a pretty readily. And that really taps into the second point that I wanted to definitely bring up is how there's this community around him and there's this coming together and there's Tammy leaving her old uh, job to come to MI and yeah. there's me dedicating myself to this in my career versus going the traditional motiv- or the traditional healthcare track um, and there's this community in the sense around MI and then there's the Mint Group, the Motivational Interviewing uh, Network of Trainers. That's an international group of, I want to say, 3,000 or so people now. And what a wonderful community of people. And it's because there's this intentionality yes. of really, you could call it beneficence or altruism or this, mm-hmm. this really this sense of contributing and embodying this way of being with okay. people. Mm-hmm. And, and we all have this level of aspiring to be that way of being and we all aren't quite there we're never going to be quite there right. as uh, Dr. Bill Miller said that's a healthy way to be yes. but we're all going to keep growing to try to get there and when you get involved with communities be it this micro community here that we have at IFIRC or it be the larger worldwide mint community um, you have a wonderful uh, community of people that are very connected that really have a lot of shared values about moving in, in a direction of helping people and also having integrity while staying open-minded and self-reflective and you just have a different experience when you're at these conferences or you're at these trainings and it's not the typical we're still humans we still have uh, opinions and politics and that's going to happen in any human organization but at a training or at a bigger conference, I just can't tell you enough how it feels so different in such a value-added way. Mm-hmm. 100% agree. Mm-hmm. 100% agree. And I think it's a term that, you know, the terminology gets thrown around a lot lately. It's, well, for years, but kind of resurgence of transactional versus transformative. Mm-hmm. And I think of not only with MI being transformative, but I think about like the Mint organization or just people that gravitate towards motivation yeah. that become life-changing. There's all, It's always... I get excited about it. I get a little worried about the whole cultish feeling at times. Everything's oh, you drank the <laughs> you drank the MI Kool Aid and yeah, yeah. all the things that come up. Yeah. But there is something that is always thrilling to me, and it doesn't happen every single training. But there's a portion of trainings where somebody comes up and their entire world has changed yes. in two days. Like yes. in two days, they come up saying. I don't know if I'm going to ever use it with my clients, but this is going to forever change how I look at my relationship, or this is going to forever change how I parent from this point forward. Mm-hmm. Like there is something profoundly like their worldview shifts slightly on its axis. Yeah. And, and that's, there is just no words to describe how amazing that is when somebody comes and tells you to do that at the end of a training. That, well, that this is, 
like fascinatingly shifted their thoughts. And to be able to give or help them to get that to that yes. place. Mm-hmm. That's what's really cool. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, a, that's the rewarding part. Yeah. And, I, and I think that's the thing when we talk about, you know, why am I as well too? It is that transformation that people can go yes. through that they will have access to that we can shepherd people through a process. Mm-hmm. And it's, and again, it's not just because we love am I, it's because there is actually kind of a rubric for how people learn am I and how they can get those am I skills in place. And I think that's where partly our obsession at IFIOC comes from is being able to do that in a way that really does foster whatever outcome that they're trying to improve in their life or just mm-hmm. the quality of their own life that they genuinely, genuinely want to improve. Yeah. And that's this kind of theme that, that uh, I'm picking up from this is just the depth, the yes. meaning, the value, the visceral feeling of something good is what we're attributing to a lot of these experiences. And I really appreciate bringing up that then someone might go, oh, well, you're just being evangelicus or whatever the right word is there for am I, right? You you, you can definitely have that opinion. And you can definitely say, well, you know, and there's a variety of treatments and, and things out there, but there is something that's happening in the evidence and there is something that we're experiencing that we're anecdotally experiencing that seems to be of value, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call that. Um, and it seems to be helping people in a variety of ways, be it with monetary things, if you want to yeah. look at efficiency of funds and use of uh, public funding, to the more compassionate view of really helping people and really empowering people uh, to not become dependent on systems. And so whatever you want to take of looking at it, we're not here to say, hoorah, rah, am I is the end-all, be-all. But we are here to say that we're experiencing these values, we're seeing these values in the world, and MI is one way to really approach helping people that mm-hmm. seems to really be having a lot of power. You know, and John, my final thought that I'll bring up in this, just listen to you say that, I just was running through, you know, fairly recently going to the UK and talking with people in Ireland yeah, and yeah. Scotland and England. Then I was running through going to Poland. Then I was running through going to Australia. Then I was running through when we were, had a chance to go to Germany. I mean, just places we've traveled and where we've had MI-based conversation and to see people even in monolingual other countries like in Poland, um, that when you're talking concepts in your language and it's being translated in their language, that all of a sudden you see furious head nods. And, and what I think of when you're talking about evangelical, what the thing that I think about with motivational learning or any other things that are talked about or TED Talks mm-hmm. is everyone I believe is seeking truth like big T truth. Mm-hmm. And there's something about that you can find truth in some of the aspects of motivational interviewing. Mm-hmm. And I think when people have the literal evangelicals or from any religious belief perspective, is people find some truth or a foundation of truth in those models and you want more truth and I think we crave it and I think when we find it we just drink it and drink it and drink it mm-hmm. and we never feel like we get satiated when you find something that has truth. And I think... Again, it's you know we're going into way beyond even a meso level of motivation. <laughs> you know, macro, meso level. I the thing to think is so fascinating for me is that on the highest level, it's just we are seeking truth and how can we make our lives better and the lives of people around us better. And and so I think yeah. that's where I, 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 <laughs> I, think, I mean I think that's where it. <laughs> Sorry. No, I love it. Totally true. It's true. Wisdom bomb. Yeah, Yeah. the wisdom bomb. Um, But I think that's when you're talking about that, and I just and I keep thinking it's cross cultural too. So there's the, you know, have you just drunk the Kool Aid? Is it just? And I just think, you know what? 
if it's good Kool-Aid and nobody gets hurt from it, it actually people find truth and they find their way and they genuinely are getting skill sets and a mindset to make their corner of the world that much more healthy and that much more happy, why wouldn't we want to? Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and that's where I do have an appreciation for different religions or different worldviews or philosophies, but it's also why my current one is why am I? That's, mm-hmm. for me, gets to all the different facets for me about mm-hmm. why motivational interviewing for me. Well, we've taken this at so many levels uh, for the time we've had. I do <laughs> want to invite Tammy uh, for your last thoughts because we got to hear Casey's very powerful wisdom drop here with the mic drop. Uh, what, are, what are some final thoughts you have as you think about, okay, I've done this. I've gotten into MI. I'm still going to develop my, my, my trainer chops. and I still got some to go, but I really know this is a part of who I want to be. What are some of the final thoughts you want to leave people with with why you've gravitated in your career and your life? Well, when we talk about, I don't have any major wisdom bombs like Casey. (laughs) Well, that's not true, but maybe not at this point. But but one of the things that, again, when you talk about trying to make your world just a little bit better and the people around you or whatever, again, am I for me, I was just telling Casey this this morning, it it makes me personally pause sometimes to go, gosh, what are they going through? Like before Mm. I just immediately go to, oh, that's like how could they be doing this or that's silly or whatever, you know, and it helps you to not sometimes judge. And again, if we could just all be at peace and love one another, (laughs) (laughs) it it would be wonderful. And again, and you know, these are skills that, that transfer and they help. And and so again, why wouldn't I try to spread that? Mm -hmm. That's my only thought. All right. And John, well, I don't, I'm not going to impart any more amazing wisdom in this already dense, wise space. <laughs> and so uh, that's not a cop-out. I can dense talk. is accurate. I, I yeah, can talk. Yeah. If you've seen any of the podcasts and things, we can talk. So uh, for now, though, I think that's been a very, it's been a very rich conversation yeah. that really has gotten to multiple levels, different ways of viewing MI, depending on whatever the way you look at the world there might be some value there. And this is really just an invitation to listen to those possibilities for yourself. And so uh, with that, you can definitely send in any questions, comments, things that you have that spurred for you in this. Uh, We would love to expand on this uh, with another uh, webcast and podcast, Um, maybe possibly activities that get creative. There's all sorts of creativity that we're open to doing. If you just submit all sorts of ideas in or questions in and we will completely develop this because it's you our members that we are looking to serve as we go about this process 100%. so uh, with that uh, you can follow us on any of our uh, social media places from uh, hashtag MI guys to, yeah. uh, <laughs> to uh, Facebook um, to change champions change yeah. champions Hashtag oh, yes. change champions okay we got a new change hashtag champions. Okay. change champions <laughs> love it <laughs> Oh my God. You got it. <laughs> That's so, so just to let you know, we are always here to help you uh, learn that communication solution is going to change your world. So that's what we're about here at IFIOC and hope you guys continue to join us. All right. Take care. Thank Bye. you.